Hello and welcome to episode 192 of the UK True Crime Podcast. I'm Adam. Today's story starts in London and involves a number of terror attacks by the IRA. Once again, before I get the complaints, let me make clear I have no interest in the politics. It's all about the personal stories for me. And talking of complaints, I had a, <laughs> I had a great one this week for a review on Apple Podcasts moaning when I said that supporting me on Patreon will make you a better person. Gosh, you've got to laugh, haven't you? Okay, just as a disclaimer, it won't make you a better person, okay? <laughs> Sometimes words aren't enough, are they? Especially on this podcast. Anyway, I think we'll just move on rapidly. And a huge thank you to all my supporters on Patreon, especially those new members of this exclusive club. That's Hilary Talbot, Claire Wright, Robin Campbell, Zena Caulfield, Joe Whittingham, Georgina Palfrey, Ali Schubert, Jennifer Trebon, Lisa Cooper Ardalick, and Rebecca Gosling. Thank you all so much for your support. Let's set some context by taking a look at the music we were listening to at the events that start this week's episode. There were a couple of classic singles featuring, with number one in the UK being Queen with Bohemian Rhapsody. You may have heard that one. In the US, it was Casey and the Sunshine Band with That's the Way I Like It. And in Australia, the top-selling album this year was Living in the 70s by the Skyhooks. This month saw the first performance of the Sex Pistols at St Martin's College in London. The Liberal leader, Malcolm Fraser, was sworn in as caretaker Prime Minister of Australia after the sacking of the Whitlam government by Governor-General John Kerr. One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest, based on the book by Ken Kesey, directed by Milos Foreman and starring Jack Nicholson, and Louise Fletcher was released, and Juan Carlos I was proclaimed King of Spain as the monarchy was restored after 31 years. Former racing driver, 46-year-old Graham Hill, died in an air crash in Hertfordshire. And finally, on the 18th of this month, saw the birth of Anthony McPartlin, TV presenter and one half of Anton Deck. Makes you feel old? Yeah, me too. Did you get the month and year? It was November in 1975. Our story today starts in North London. If you were around my age, you would have enjoyed watching the excellent Roy Castle's Record Breakers when you were a child. I used to love it, and for some reason my favourite part was when the official man from the Guinness Book of Records came on to ensure fair play. You might remember him, Norris McWhirter. I loved his ability to remember obscure facts, and I faintly recall my dad telling me that his brother had been murdered, but I never found out the details until I started researching this week's episode. Norris's twin was Ross McWhirter, the youngest of three brothers, born in August 1925. Along with Norris, Ross became a sports journalist, as the brothers worked to found an agency aiming to supply facts and figures to newspapers, yearbooks, encyclopedias and advertisers. Those days before the internet. One athlete well known to them from university was Chris Chataway, one of the pacemakers when Roger Bannister broke the four-minute mile. He worked for Guinness at the time, and he brought them at Werters to the attention of the man running Guinness, Hugh Beaver, which resulted in the brothers in 1955 producing the first version of the Guinness Book of Records. 
Four years later, the first edition was the UK's number one non-fiction bestseller. From this, both brothers were regulars on Record Breakers, where with their incredible memories, they answered detailed questions from the audience about entries in the Guinness Book of Records. In the early 1960s, Ross was a strong supporter of the Conservative Party and had stood unsuccessfully to be the MP for Edmonton in the 1964 general election. He was outspoken on his views on stopping the IRA, who at the time we joined the story in 1975, had taken responsibility for a series of horrific terrorist attacks in England, which had left many people dead or injured. He published a pamphlet which he called How to Beat the Bombers, which included suggestions such as making it compulsory for Irish citizens to register with the local police, and to insist they left signed photographs of themselves when renting flats or booking into hotels and hostels. He also offered a £50,000 reward for information leading to the successful conviction of the terrorists. As you can imagine, this intervention from a high-profile figure like Ross didn't go down very well at all with the IRA leadership, who effectively saw it as him placing a bounty on the heads of their members carrying out the attacks. And just three weeks later, on the 27th of November 1975, 50-year-old Ross McWhirter was in his home in Enfield, North London, getting ready to go to the theatre with his wife and friends that evening, blissfully unaware that two IRA gunmen were hiding in his garden. When his wife Rosemary arrived home, she got out of her blue Ford Granada to be greeted with the sight of the two men carrying pistols. Terrified, she ran into the house, and as Ross came to the door, she heard two shots, which left Ross collapse in his doorway. The gunman fled in her car, later abandoning it a few miles away in Tottenham. Ross had been shot at close range in the head and chest with a magnum revolver, and although he was rushed to Chase Farm Hospital, he was sadly unable to survive his injuries and was dead on arrival. As well as his wife Rosemary, Ross's death at just 50 left his children Ian and James without a dad. The IRA gang which Ross had offered the reward for their capture had been active since August 1974 and had managed to kill and injure many. Unbeknown to the public at this time, it was actually a small unit of up to six people, which was a strategic decision by the IRA leadership. Let's quickly set some context around this. The IRA wanted the British to withdraw from Northern Ireland, and by spring 1973, it widened its campaign of terror to the UK mainland. The aim was to simply influence British opinion by attacking economic, military and other key targets. It was always said that the IRA thought that one bomb in England had the same impact as 30 bombs in Belfast due to the massive coverage received in the media. The first bomb they placed was at the most famous court in the land, the Old Bailey. In March 1973, an 11-person IRA Active Service Unit, or ASU, placed the bomb in a car outside the Old Bailey Court. The IRA alerted the authorities and Scotland Yard warned the City of London Police at 2.01pm to search near the Old Bailey for a green Ford Cortina. The car was not found until 235 
and 14 minutes later it exploded, as police were still trying to clear the area. Over 200 people were injured in the explosion, some with severe life-changing injuries, and 60-year-old Frederick Milton died of a heart attack. But the bombers were caught at Heathrow Airport just before the timed explosions, as the security forces had been tipped off and were expecting them, and so carrying out stringent checks on all passengers heading to Dublin or Belfast. All ten gave the authorities false names that didn't match their documents, They were arrested and later faced trial at Winchester Crown Court. In November 1973, two women and six men were found guilty of the attack. The jury acquitted one, Roshi McNeary, who turned against the others and provided information to detectives. As a tearful Roshin heard her verdict, the other defendants began to hum the dead march. One threw a coin at her, shouting, Take your blood money with you. But the IRA leadership knew that although the bombing had been a massive success in terms of the publicity, having such a large ASU for one large bombing was too much of a risk. In future, they would use smaller, so-called sleeper cells, who would be in place for a number of months and carry out several attacks. And so the members of the ASU, later known as the Balcombe Street Gang, named after the flat near Marylebone Station, where they eventually based themselves, arrived in England in August 1974. The first two members, Brendan Dowd and Joseph O'Connell, touched down at Heathrow from Shannon Airport on the premise of moving to England to look for jobs. They initially rented a flat in Fulham, south-west London, where they lived and stored their weapons and bomb-making equipment. The rest of the gang was made up of Hugh Doherty, Eddie Butler, Harry Duggan and Liam Quinn, a US national. But as we will hear, there were certainly others also involved whose names are not publicly available. Now in situ, the gang began drawing up their list of targets for the autumn using the army list, civil service yearbook, the Brett's peerage and who's who among other reference books. Their campaign started in Guildford, Surrey at two pubs, the Horse and Groom and the Seven Stars. These targets were chosen as they were heavily used by members of the British Army stationed at nearby barracks. The Horse and Groom was popular because it had the cheapest beer in town and the Seven Stars had a disco. This meant that servicemen and women would often start in the Horse and Groom before moving on to the Seven Stars a little later. This is probably why the terrorists placed two bombs, with the first time to go off earlier in the horse and groom, and the second a bit later in the Seven Stars. Ros Franey, writing for the Observer magazine in 1986, described how the bombs were placed by the gang. I will quote her words. Brendan Dowd was driving that afternoon as usual. It was 5.15 when he swung the Avenger into the multi-storey car park and came to a halt. Sitting beside him in the front passenger seat, Joe O'Connell reached down into his duffel bag and pulled out two bundles of gelignite sticks. While the others waited, Joe tied the loose wires which connected each bundle to a watch, a detonator and a battery and set the watches for nine o'clock, more than three hours to play with. Then he turned and passed the two prime bombs to two women and a third man sitting in the back. 
the women tucked the bombs into their handbags. One then set off with Brendan for the horse and groom. The other woman went with Joe and the third man to the Seven Stars. The men knew the way. They'd been down twice before, choosing the targets and planning their routes. They had chosen pubs which were used by soldiers and which would soon be especially full as men and women left local barracks for a Saturday night out in Guildford. Inside the pubs, each team went through the same routine. They bought drinks, played the jukebox and acted casually while the women slipped their loaded handbags under seats, discreetly pulling identical bags from their coat pockets so they could leave as they'd arrived. By seven, they were all back at the car park. The two pubs were beginning to fill up as Brendan drove them through the city centre and away up the A3 to London. They did not stop to telephone a warning. By 8.15, they were sitting safely drinking in the Durrell Arms in the Fulham Road. And shortly afterwards, in Guildford, as planned, the two bombs detonated in the pubs caused the death of one civilian and four soldiers. Over 60 people were injured. The first bomb exploded at the horse and groom at 8.50pm. It was just over half an hour later that the second bomb exploded at the Seven Stars in nearby Swan Lane. Nothing was real, said one of the drinkers in the horse and groom that night. One minute it was laughter and the jukebox was playing, then screams and moans. Four teenagers were killed at the horse and groom, including 19-year-old Anne Murray from Crewe and 18-year-old Caroline Slater from Cannock, who were serving in the Women's Royal Army Corps, or RACS. Caroline came from a military family, with her dad serving in the Royal Artillery and her two older sisters also having joined the army. She'd only started training on the 15th of September that year, and when on the morning of the 5th of October she was given a pass to stay out until midnight that evening, friends at the barracks suggested she head to the horse and groom. Two teenage boys were killed, 18-year-old William Forsyth and 17-year-old John Hunter. They'd both grown up on the same street in Renfrewshire in Scotland and had been friends at school, both joining the army on the 11th of September that year. That night they left the barracks at 4.30pm in high spirits as they took the bus and train into Guildford with another young guardsman, Stephen Cooper. First stop was the Seven Stars pub about 6.30pm where they had one drink before popping into the Three Pigeons on the high street. They didn't stay there but instead went on to the Horse and Groom pub where they sat in one of the alcoves on the left-hand side close to the fireplace in the jukebox and unbeknown to them close to where the bomb was planted. After some good-natured ribbing that it was his round, Stephen went to the bar, leaving his mates chatting to some women from the racks. The bar was short of glasses, which meant he couldn't get the three pints of lager he wanted, so he headed off to get some glasses from a nearby table. And as he did so, the bomb exploded, knocking him out cold. When he came to, he'd been blown through the pub window, and his friends were dead. William Forsyth's aunt would later say, We cannot believe the boys have been so cruelly killed. They were like brothers, close personal friends. And Stephen was discharged from the army the following year as a result of his injuries. A 22-year-old plasterer called Paul Craig was also killed. He was out celebrating his birthday and that of his friend, 19-year-old Carol Ann Burns, who had joined the rack on the 16th of September that year. 
Paul had made the trip with Carol's parents. They'd all travelled from Boreham Wood to celebrate with Carol. They picked her up and left Carol's barracks at 6.45pm, arriving at the horse and groom at about 7. They too had sat down in an alcove by the jukebox. Carol at one point had swapped seats with Paul after popping to the toilet, and after that, the alcove became very busy, with many people wishing Carol a happy birthday. Despite only having been in the rack for under a month, she'd made plenty of friends. And two of the other racks who were in the same alcove with their back to the group were Caroline Slater and Anne Hamilton. Carol survived the blast and would later say that when the bomb went off she heard a buzzing sound and thought she was fainting. When they found her she was lying just on the edge of a huge hole from the pub floor into the basement. Her dad Robert had no memory of the bomb which left him unconscious in a hospital bed for five weeks. He would later say how the pub was mainly filled with kids and his memories of the evening was a lively environment with many people wishing his daughter happy birthday and Carol's mum too suffered terrible injuries. Police at the scene first thought that the horse and groom explosion was caused by a gas leak. It was only after the second explosion that they realised what had happened, and the other pubs in the area were evacuated. Fortunately, the publican of the Seven Stars, Brian Owen O'Brien, had cleared his pub after seeing the aftermath of the first explosion. Up to 200 people had been there earlier that evening, and without his actions many more would certainly have been killed and injured. Brian, four pub staff and the girl who was walking past were injured when the second bomb did explode. One policeman only to the scene after the first bomb went off later said, My image to this day is parking and getting out of the car and walking past a dead body in the gutter. I always remembered that but thought it can't be right but about two years ago I was shown a photograph of a stretcher in the road where I parked my car and a water worker called Robert Richardson had been called out to repair a burst water main. But on hearing the explosion, followed by the sound of breaking glass and screams, he went straight into the horse and groom, which was filled with smoke. He said, People were running about, their faces covered in blood. I went into the building and started to take out the ones that could walk out. There were bodies littered all over the place. And finally, a local journalist told Surrey Live how, and I quote, It was the bodies in the rubble that finally hit me in the stomach and forced me to act. They are still in my mind, but as I've said, my imagination has twittered them so much that I don't know if the black, glistening, bleeding heaps were really what I saw. I only know that they are what is in my mind now and for a long time to come. A total of 17 ambulances, including four military vehicles, took bodies and casualties to the Royal Surrey, Farnham Road and Cambridge Military Hospitals. Detectives were under immense pressure to make arrests for these dreadful attacks and in December 1974 they arrested Paul Hill, Jerry Conlon, Patrick Armstrong and Carol Richardson, later known as the Guildford Four. This is the story for another podcast, but in one of the most devastating miscarriages of justice seen in the UK, under intense interrogation, all confessed to being responsible for the bombings and despite retracting their statements and proclaiming their innocence, the four were convicted of murder on October 1975 and given life sentences.
The Guildford Four's conviction was finally quashed on the 19th of October 1989 and they were released. The confessions of the four had been obtained under what was close to torture and evidence clearing them was ignored by the police. Three Surrey police officers were charged with conspiracy to further the course of justice over the handling of the cases. They faced an Old Bailey trial in 1993 for their actions, but were all found not guilty. And less than a week after the Guildford pub bombings, the Balcombe Street gang were back in action. On the 9th of October, Dowden O'Connell mistakenly kidnapped a man called Basil Dalton, an East Kent bus inspector, from the coach station in Buckingham Palace Road. They realised their error, and he was later found unharmed in the boot of his courser. Then on the 11th of October, at about 10.30pm, they used hand-thrown bombs to attack two clubs for those who had been involved in the services, both based in London's West End. Firstly, the Victory Services Club near Marble Arch, where over 700 ex-service people were enjoying a reunion. The bomb went off by the billiard room, destroying the room and sending glass everywhere. The terrorists then headed to St James's Square, where they attacked the Army and Navy Club, where 70 members of the Royal West Africa Frontier Force were also having their annual reunion. Luckily, just one person was injured in this attack. The gang had rented a car for the trip to Guildford and realised that this could leave them vulnerable to detection, so in future were looking to steal very common makes of car for their future operations. This time O'Connell and Dowd were seen acting suspiciously around cars in the car park of the Semley Place multi-storey car park near Victoria, close to midnight, by two 21-year-old police officers heading home after their shifts. When they questioned the two men, Dowd pulled out a gun. PC Nichols managed to escape and raise the alarm, but PC Lloyd was taken, his arms tied behind his back, and was bundled into the back of a Ford Cortina. Terrified for his life, he was lucky, as a terrorist dumped him a quarter of a mile away after stealing his watch and warrant card. Next, the gang wanted to show it wasn't just those who had served in the armed forces who were under attack, but also the heart of the British establishment. Their target was the second oldest club in London, founded in 1764, and just down the road from the Victory Club, which had been targeted previously. It was 10pm when the stolen Ford Cortina pulled up outside Brooks Club and they threw the bomb inside. Luckily the diners had all finished in the main dining room and the only people present were the wine steward and two people washing up. Luckily, none of them sustained serious injuries in the attack. One of the first on the scene was ex-Prime Minister Edward Heath who was dining nearby and there was speculation that the bomb was meant for him I don't think it was meant for me, he said. I didn't decide to have dinner out until a quarter of an hour before. He added, there was a lot of damage there. The ceiling is down in one room and it is a shambles. Then again, a few days later, the gang targeted a cottage in the grounds of Harrow Public School, which used to house the head of the school's combined cadet force. But fortunately, again, no one was hurt in the attack. But sadly, that wasn't to be the case in their next target, the King's Arm pub in Woolwich, South London. And next week, we will look at exactly what happened there, along with the other attacks, before the capture of the gang. 
Thank you so much for taking the time to listen to this episode of the UK True Crime Weekly Podcast. To discuss this story or any other aspect of UK True Crime, please head to the Facebook group. And to support the show, please head to patreon.com slash UK True Crime. Disclaimer, it won't make you a better person. It won't make you a better person. But hey, there's lots of good stuff there. Bonus episodes, watch me record a podcast live, there's some stats, access to an exclusive Facebook group, and all the behind scenes of what's going on to produce this podcast. So thanks again for taking the time to join me for the UK's 37th most popular true crime podcast. So until we speak again next week, please do take it easy. And despite all the others out there, yeah, I get it, I fully understand. Please do stay classy. Cheerio for now.